All right, while they receive the offering, go ahead and pull out your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, there is a Bible underneath the seat you are sitting in. You can reach down there and pull that out. It's blue. Um, and Acts 13 in the blue Bible is on page uh, 1020. 1020 in the blue Bible. We're going to be walking through Acts 13 this morning. We are in a series on the book of Acts, uh, the historical work written by a guy named Luke. Luke wrote this work to a guy named Theophilus so that he would have the history, that he would have the knowledge and understanding of what has happened, what has transpired since the resurrection of Christ. Christ has died, he raises from the grave, he ascends into heaven, and then the church just explodes. Not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, but to the ends of the earth, the church goes forth. And so we walked through the first nine chapters of Acts last summer. We're doing the next nine to ten this summer, and then we'll do the last uh, nine, eight or nine next uh, year as well. So just kind of just taking it chunk by chunk, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we're walking through it together. And this morning, uh, we come to this place where Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey, carrying the gospel throughout the known world, and they come to a place called Antioch. Now, before we dive in, it's important to realize that there are more, there's more than one Antioch, okay? In the book of Acts, there's more than one Antioch. Okay, there's an Antioch uh, of Syria, Antioch of Syria, which is kind of the more well-known Antioch. Uh, There's a church downtown Salt Lake City called Antioch Church, and they're named after the church of Antioch of Syria, which is found in Acts chapter 11. But we're not in Acts chapter 11, we're in Acts chapter 13. And we're talking about the Antioch of Poseidon, which is in what is modern-day Turkey. So kind of Western central modern day Turkey, a few hundred miles north of the coast, in this mountainous region, there was a city called Antioch. And this is so it's a different Antioch than what we see in chapter 11. And so Paul and Barnabas roll into Antioch and they go to the synagogue as is, which would be normal for them. This is kind of the, the, what they would do as they go from town to town, city to city. They roll into the synagogue. Now Paul's from Jerusalem, which is the, the kind of the epicenter. It's where the temple is. It's where all of the scholars and leaders of the church are or the leaders of, of the Jewish faith are. And so Paul is from there. And, and so they, they look at Paul and they say, man, here we are at the synagogue on the, on the Sabbath day. And after they're kind of done, they look at Paul and they say, hey, we have, we have some travelers in town from Jerusalem. Brothers, do you have anything that you want to say? Any, anything that you have for us this morning? And Paul is like, yes, I do. And he gets up and he begins to proclaim the gospel to them. And that's what we're going to read this morning. We're going to read their reaction uh, to this Truth, And so here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the Word of God. And so we just give, we stand in awe of it and give it reverence. And so if you're able, would you stand with me as I read it for us this morning? Here we go. We're going to pick it up in chapter 13, Acts 13. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter 13. Reads this way. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Cana, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. 
Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John, John the Baptist, uh, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news. We bring you gospel that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead and no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will, I, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, though this, that through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after meeting with the synagogue, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered. To hear the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. 
Man, this is a pretty, actually a pretty amazing story of what takes place in Antioch in this day. Uh, for a few reasons. Number one, we get to see really the, the only real, genuine, full sermon of Paul uh, recorded in the Bible, right? We have a lot of Paul's writings, but we actually get to see his sermon. We get to see the voice and the words that he spoke uh, to the people in the synagogue that day. And, and not just that day, but when he goes from town to town, city to city, village to village, when he shows up and he rolls into the synagogue, this is what he says again and again and again and again. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church, and he, he did this in, in Corinth, right? He shows up and does the same thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul tells them and reminds them of how he spoke to them in Corinth. And he says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Man, Listen, I, I didn't come to you declaring the testimony of our God with lofty words, or wisdom. I didn't come to you kind of showing off my smarts and wowing you with my ability to, to be a great orator. No, he doesn't do that. And we see that here, right? What Paul does in, in the bulk of this sermon is he just kind of gives Jewish history 101 to a crowd of devout Jews. I mean, just th think about it for a second. Like, Every little Jewish boy and girl grows up learning the depths of their history. They're, they're a proud people. They're proud of their history. They're proud of their traditions. They're proud of their leaders. They're proud of the, the Abrahams and the, and the Moseses and the Davids. They're, they're proud of that. And they're proud of what God has done through their people. They know the stories. And so Paul gets up and he says, Men of Israel and those of you who fear God... We're people that were raised up under the nation of Egypt. In the, in the nation of Egypt, we were people who were raised up by that. And God has led us, God led us out of that slavery and out of that bondage by the raising up of his hands. By his hand, he led us out of that. And all the guys in the room were like, yeah, we, we know that. He goes on, he's like, and, and you know that for 40 years he put up with his people as they wandered through the wilderness. And then he defeats the seven armies of Canaan. And he, delivers the, he delivers them into the land that, that is their inheritance. And all of this took about 450 years. Yeah, we know. I learned that when I was three. He's like, and, and then the people long for a king, or the people were, were led by judges until the day comes when God raises up Samuel, and they long for a king, and they gave him Saul, and Saul reigned for 40 years, and he removed Saul, and he brings about King David, and King David was a man after his own heart, and King David submitted to the will of the Lord. Well, you know that too. Learned that when I was four. And from King David... From his line has come a Savior. From the offspring of King David has come a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Now this, this is new. This is fresh. And again, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, man, I didn't come to you with a lofty speech. I didn't come to you with wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except what? Sunday school answer. I can't hear you whispering. I decided to know nothing among you but 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen, it's really easy. That's like, that's like the go-to answer, like every little kid upstairs when you ask him a question. Jesus, okay? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this is, he, he paints with this broad brush, this history that everybody knows. And all he decides to know, I don't know anything special that you don't know, but what I do know that you don't know is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He declares to them the goodness and the sweetness that in their day, the promises of their fathers have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That by his grace and by his salvation, they have been freed from the bondage of the law. And this is new. This is fresh. This is amazing. But what is, what is fascinating in this sermon, there is a line in the midst of this sermon that caught me off guard. And I don't know if you caught it or not. But there's something in there that kind of, if you think about it a little bit, it kind of it has to haunt you slightly. Here's what he says in verse, in verse 27. Look at verse 27 with me. He says, he's talking, he's talking about the, what happened to Jesus. He says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the, of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Here's what Paul says. In, in the epicenter of the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, in Jerusalem, where the temple is, where, where, the, where the greatest scholars of the day are, where the people who live there sit in the synagogue week after week after week after week, talking about the prophets who prophesied of what God was going to be like, what the Messiah was going to be like when he came. When he showed up, when God showed up among them, they did not recognize him. They didn't recognize him. Like the people that should have seen him and known him far clearer than anybody else on the planet, or on the planet they, they should have seen him. They should have been like, there's our God. They didn't. They're blind to him. They, they could not see him. They could not, they did not know him. Why? Why? Why, did they, why couldn't they see him? Why didn't they recognize him? Because they didn't know him. They didn't know their God. They had the history. They had their traditions. They had their feast. They had their celebrations. They had their temple. They had their scholars, their rulers, and their leaders. They had this whole religious system, but they had no God. Even in their own temple, this dwelling place of God, God was not there. He had not been there for hundreds of years. Right? If you, if you, if you remember at, at all, kind of your Old Testament history, God met with his people in the tabernacle, in the holies of holies. God would come and he would, he would sit on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and there he would meet with the high priest. And so regularly people were standing in awe of the power of God, the presence of God being poured out on the nation again and again and again. They built a temple where he would come and he would sit on that same seat. But then and during the time of the Babylonian exile, when Babylon comes in and conquers them and exiles them to a foreign city, they take all the stuff out of the temple. They remove the ark. And from that moment on, the people become far from God. And they never again experience his presence. Hundreds of years, the culture begins to press in. 
And the culture of their day begins to outweigh the presence of God. They have not sought him. They do not know him. They do not know their own God. They have their culture, which is a religious culture. It's a culture of religious feast and religious traditions and religious institutes. But there is no God. It is empty. It's empty. And it's been empty for a long time. And even Jesus talks about this idea. As he walks into Jerusalem, he sees that the, the culture of the day, the Roman culture, and the culture of the people in Jerusalem is, is over to has pressed God out of their lives. It's pressed God out of their city. Right? Kind of most famously in Matthew 21, right? Jesus walks into the temple and he sees the money changers and he sees... People selling these, these sacrifices, and he, and he gets frustrated, he gets angry, and somehow, kind of out of nowhere, he whittles his own whip. He like fashions his own whip, and he begins whipping people, driving them out of the temple, flipping over tables, just as righteous and holy angry. He says, What are you doing? Do you not realize that you have that you've emptied God from this place and you filled it with the culture of the day? You filled it with a way to make money. You the culture of the day always revolves around the same things. Of every culture that has ever existed in all of history, it always revolves around the same things. Money, kind of fame and power, and autonomy. It's freedom. Money, fame, and power, and autonomy. And we see that in this culture, right? They're, they're tr- they, money has taken the place of God within the temple, and Jesus drives it out. A couple chapters later, in chapter 23 of Matthew, right, J- Jesus turns to the religious elite, the, the rulers of the day, these Jewish, just these great men who are esteemed by all in the community. And here's what he says to them in Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. He says, look, you've propped up this image of, of what the culture wants to see. You've propped up this image of this false spirituality. You've propped up this image that's going to bring you fame and power, but behind it all is just emptiness. Behind it all is death. There's no God there. You've just propped up this image that is not real. It's not genuine. You've propped up a fake image in order to gain power and popularity and fame. But there's no God there. A few verses later, he says this. He turns to Jerusalem and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left, your temple, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't want anybody to tell me how to live. I don't want anybody to tell me what's right and what's wrong. I don't want anybody to tell me what, what to do or what not to do. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, you're the city. You've killed the prophets. You've killed those whom God has called to you and has sent to you to turn you back to him and say, stop doing those things and turn back to God. He wants to draw you in as a mother hen would, would draw in her little chicks. But you've killed them. 
You've ostracized them. You've cast them out. You've closed your ears. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear it anymore. Nobody's going to tell me what to believe. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And so your temple is left desolate. It's empty. There's nothing there. And so when Jesus shows up, when God himself shows up, they do not recognize them because they do not know God. They don't know God. Where's the temple today? Where's the dwelling place of God now in our day, in our time? If you're a follower of Jesus, you you would say, man, I'm a Christian. Where is the dwelling place of God? Where's the presence of God found? Where? In us. In us. We we are his temple, right? 1 Corinthians 3.16 reads this way. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in us? In you cannot be more clear than that. You are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. God said a long, long time ago, this is how this is going to go down. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, he says this. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make one day, will make in the future with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Where is the law in the the nation of Israel, in the days of Israel? Where where is the law found? In the Holy of Holies. It's in the ark. The the law was was placed in, in the ark. It's in the Holy of Holies. It's where God dwells. Where is it now? It's written on our hearts. It's in the place that God dwells. We are his temple, and his spirit dwells and resides within us. And so the question is, the question is, could could it be that we've done the same thing that Jerusalem did in their day? That, that through, through walking, through adopting and walking in and honoring the culture of our day, we have pressed God to the far margins of our lives, the far margins of even our churches, and welcomed culture in and said, these are the things that we want to mark our lives, not the God of all things. Think about it. Money, power, fame, and autonomy. Are not these the things that we chase? Are not, is not money the thing that we chase and the, the thing that consumes our hearts? The, th- the thing that presses God out of our hearts more than anything else is the desire for more stuff, more of this world. I, I, need, a, I need more time to focus on my career. I need more time to think about my finances. I, I need to press in. I need to earn more. I need to buy more. And greed creeps in. And, and then God is pressed out of our hearts as our love for money is pressed in. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is this not us? Fame and power. Do we not prop up a false image of ourselves? Is social media not the whitewashed tomb of our day? Do, do we not prop up this image in, in this so that people would look at us and say, look how awesome they are, that we would gain their likes, that, we, that they would like us, that they would say, look how amazing they are, look how awesome they are, look how powerful they are. Is this not how presidents are elected? Is this not how, how we see those who are famous? Is this not how applause is earned by propping up this false image of ourselves, by propping up this false image of people and saying, man, that's fame, that's power. 
But what's behind it? Every study that has been done reveals that behind it is just depression and sorrow and emptiness and longing. Death is behind it. There's no God there. It's empty. It's a whitewashed tomb. And so, so yeah, you can, you, can, you can prop up this image of yourself on Instagram of, man, you, you just got back from your workout and you're looking good. You got six kids that are hanging on, on your arms. You're drinking your homemade smoothie while reading like some amazing literary work while somehow being able to take a selfie of all of that at the same time. It's amazing. That's impressive. I'll give you that. But it's not real. It's not genuine. And we look at it and we're like, oh, I'm not that good. I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that perfect. Like that's a perfect mom right there. I'm not that way. But what's ultimately behind that is anxiety and worry and sorrow and stress, wondering, man, why doesn't anybody like me? What do I have to do? What do I have to prop up? What, what do I have to whitewash so that people will see this and think that I'm actually worthy of their like? I'm worthy of their affection. Are we not doing the same thing today? Pressing God out and propping up this fake image of who we are. Autonomy. There's never been a generation in the entire world, there's never been a time or a place or a location that has been more autonomous than we are now. We have no need for anybody at any time for anything. I don't need you. Like, like, listen, I can get any information I want at any time by just by saying, hey, Alexa, answer this question. And she just, she just knows, right? Uh, Amazon can deliver me whatever I want, whenever I want it. With just, just with the click of a button, it's just there. We don't need friendships anymore because we can find it online. We don't need relationships. We don't need community. We don't, we don't need anything anymore. We crave autonomy. But you are not autonomous. We press God out. We say, I have no need for you. I, we've forgotten our need for God. We've pressed him out in the, in the pursuit of freedom. But as we pursue freedom, we find that we are just bound by sorrow and depression and anxiety. We are bound by the culture of our day. The harder we push him away, seeking the freedom found in our culture, the more we realize that freedom is not found there at all. Not found there at all. And so I wonder for us in this room, I wonder for, for us who would say, I'm a Christian. If Jesus stepped into your life today, would you recognize him? Would you recognize him? Like the real Jesus. Would you, would you recognize him? I'm not talking about the, the cheesy, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, flowing-in-the-wind painting of Jesus. I'm talking about the real deal. Jesus, if he, if he came into your life, the one who was not esteemed by men, there's nothing of his likeness that would, that would cause us to, to, to draw our attention towards him. The real deal, if you just saw his actions of the guy in your office and nobody takes note of, if the barista at Starbucks, the homeless guy on the street, if the real Jesus showed up in your life, would you even know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Is he at the center of all that you are? Does he dwell within you, the real Jesus? Do you have a real relationship with him? Like when was the last time you experienced the presence of God in your life? 
Like when, when was the last time you, you full on experienced the presence of God in your life? Like your kids walked in and you're just a puddle of tears on the floor because God is just moving in your soul and you just you can't keep it in anymore. When was the last time you experienced his presence? Do you know him? Do, do you have a relationship with him? Can you identify the real Jesus, right? We all, we all know the, the, the cheesy, overused illustration, but it's accurate and it works, right? How do, how do they teach bank tellers to identify counterfeit bills? By forcing them to study the real one. They study the real one, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them looking at every speck of ink and every dot and every cross T and every, everything about it. Everything is studied and memorized. And so that when they see the fake one, they're like, that's not real. That's not genuine. Do you know the real one? Do you have a real relationship with the real Jesus? When the real Jesus shows up in our lives, things take place. Things happen. We see it happen in Antioch on this day. Look at verse 42. Acts 13, verse 42, he says this, says, as they went out, as Paul and Barnabas leave, the people begged that, they, that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And see, the real Jesus is one that we cannot get enough of and cannot get close enough to. Right? They beg, please come back next week. Please, please don't leave. As they're leaving, they don't, they don't let them leave. They're like, please continue. Don't stop talking. Don't stop telling us. Right? When was the last time you were late to work because your quiet time that morning was just so good you couldn't leave? When was the last time that like, a sermon was too short for you? I can answer that one for you. No one's ever been like, Josh, don't stop. That's, okay, I'll own that. It's me. That's my fault. I'm to blame. When was the last time that you just hungered for more? You see, this is the thing about Jesus. The more we have, the more we want. The more you experience the presence of God in your life, the more you need it, the more you hunger for it. Now, this is counterintuitive to us, right? Because the more you eat, the less hungry you are, kind of by nature. The more steak you eat, eventually you're like, I'm going to vomit. I'm sweating meat right now. Something must stop or this is going to go bad, right? However, there's times when you taste something and you can't get enough. A few months ago, my wife uh, came home. We were having a dinner at our house. So I think some of you guys might have been there. Uh, I think it was like a newcomer's dinner or something. And she came home with these chips from the grocery store. And they said on the bag, it says, Private Select. Me and my nature, if you know me, that's not going to fly in my house. I begin to mock the chips. I'm like, wait a second. These are potato chips? Yeah, private select. Like, what are we doing here? Like, am I going to open my pantry and be like, look, I got fine scotch and cigars and, oh, my private select chips. Like, you can't put that on a bag of chips. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. But then I ate one. I ate one. It was smoked Gouda. One chip. I finished off half the bag by myself. The next day, I opened the drawer, and half the bag of chips are there, and I was like, mm, I want one of those chips again, and I ate one. 
I finished the rest of the bag single-handedly. Like in less than 24 hours, friends, I ate nearly an entire bag of chips by myself. That's jacked up, okay? That's not right. That's not healthy. You should not do that. That's not normal. That's not like humanly normal. But I did it, and I've done it again since, okay? She brings them home like, oh my gosh, I can't stop. The more you have, the more you, when you taste and see the beauty and the wonder and the joy and the satisfaction of the real, genuine Jesus, you need more. You need more. You, You can't stop. It causes us to long for more. Is this true of your relationship with Jesus? When you close your eyes at night, Are you sorry? Are you sorry to go to sleep and you just can't wait till the next morning when your eyes will wake and you can fall on your knees once again because your relationship with him is so real and so sweet and you've experienced the presence of God in your life often and regular. Is that true of you? Some of you are like, Josh, you know, it's just a dry season for me. That happens, that's true. But how long has that dry season been? Because most of the guys that I talk to, that's like, it's just dry season. I'm like, well, how's that long has it been? They're like, oh, since college. Like, dude, that's like 10 years ago. I think a 10-year dry season, that doesn't, that's, no, like, no, stop. Like, it's been years since you've actually had a meaningful time in the Word where the presence of God was just poured out into you. You know Him. Would you recognize Him? Not only is this relationship with our God uh, one that we can't get enough of, not only is it one that we can't get enough of, it's one that we can't give enough of. We can't give it enough. We can't, we can't release enough. I mean, i got to tell more people about this. We see this in verse 44. It says, in the, ne- the next Sabbath, the next Sabbath in Antioch, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And you got to think about this. You got to realize this is not a Jewish city. This is, this is people from all different tribes and nations and religions and walks of life. Everybody shows up. The Jews leave their synagogue that day and they're like, you've got to hear what's happened in Jerusalem. You've got to hear about this one that has brought healing and restoration and freedom. You've got to hear about God putting on flesh and dwelling among us. You've got to come here. And people come to hear Paul and Barnabas speak again. Like, like how many of us in this room just long for the gathering so much, long for this time, this moment so much, and we just cannot stop to tell people about it. We can't stop telling people about it. Like in our culture, in our day, it has become culturally acceptable to say, I'm a Christian, but I like golf more than church. You don't know the real Jesus. You can't. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I like camping more than I like the gathering of the saints. You don't know the presence of God. You wouldn't wouldn't know him if he walked into your life right now. You wouldn't know it. You couldn't identify him. The people, the people there in Antioch that day are like, you've got to come see him. You've got to come see him. I've been reading a book. I just picked it up. It's about uh, a revival in, in, these, in these islands called the Hebrides Islands. 
This happened in the 1940, late 40s, 1949. Uh, Hebrides Islands, uh, which are, which are on, on the western, northwestern edge of Scotland. And there's a Scottish uh, pastor and uh, evangelist. His name is Duncan Campbell. And Duncan was uh, a pastor in Edinburgh, Scotland, in the city. That's where he wanted to be. And he receives his call to go to the Hebrides Islands. And he's like, no, that ain't happening. And again, they say, no, no, you've got to come. You've got to come and preach here. You've got to come and tell people about Jesus. Like, nah, it happened. Three times, three times. They say, come on, come on. And it finally, he's like, all right, fine. I'll go. I'll go talk to these crazy island people. And he experiences some fruit right, right away. People are receiving Jesus. They're being baptized. But it wasn't until 1949, Duncan is called to go preach in Northern Ireland. And he goes to Ireland, and he, and he begins, and he's supposed to preach that night. But during that, right before he's supposed to preach, that day, he receives this kind of, there's a presence of God in his life. And it says, man, you've got to get out of there. You've got to go back to the Hebrides, to a specific island in particular. It was like, like so clear, so crystal clear that God didn't want me to be here. He wanted me to be there. And so he scheduled his preach. He's like, sorry, I got to go. You're going to have to find somebody else. He goes back to the Hebrides. Meanwhile, back on this island in the Hebrides, there's, there's, a, there's a church there, and there's no pastor of this church. There's only an elder, and the elder of the church has been praying for a revival in this town. And suddenly, the, just the presence of God begins to press on him and says, man, one is coming to speak. And so he sets up a series of meetings all week long. He calls, advertises, tells the whole town, hey, you got to come to the church on, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You got to come. You got to see if there's somebody coming. But he didn't have a speaker. He said, there's nobody lined up. Duncan Campbell shows into town. He's like, uh, I don't know why, but I feel like God has told me to be here. And the other church is like, I know why. Stage is set, baby. You're up. And Duncan Campbell preaches that night. And the next night, and the next night, and by the end of the week, the entire island is there, and they've given their life to, to Christ. Nearly every single person on the island is baptized. Nearly every single person on the island receives Christ, and revival breaks out throughout all of the islands. This happened in our day. I mean, the people who experience this are still alive. This is 1949, 1950s. The people are still alive. They tell the story, this unbelievable story. There's like, there's never, like, there's like, then there's a special presence of God over all of our lives. Like you, we can't explain it. We can't put it into words. Like what he did in that time was absolutely amazing. They experienced his presence. Like the real Jesus became real to them, and they had a real relationship with him. And, and, they, and they just, it just consumed them. The more they had, the more they needed. Just like, just like, private select chips. They needed more, and they had to share it. They had to tell people about it. You've got to come and see. You've got to experience this. All of the things that our culture says would free us have failed. But as Paul says to the church in Antioch, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everything that you're trying to escape, everything that you're trying to, to get out of, all of the weight of culture and all the weight of your sin, there's only one way out. 
the people in the Hebrides and the people of Antioch, they experienced that freedom and they said, this is the greatest thing ever. And so, yes, do, do we hope, oh, that we would hope that in our day, in our culture, in our time, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, with our friends, that we would experience that same type of a revival? Yes, we hope that. But it must happen in you first. It must happen in your heart first. Duncan Campbell said it this way. Here's what he said. He says, the kingdom of God is not going to be advanced by our churches becoming filled with men but by men in our churches becoming filled with God. Oh, that you would experience revival in your heart. That you would experience an outpouring of the presence of God in your life. That you'd push culture to the far edges of your life and welcome God back into the center of it. And like a hen to his chicks, he would take you in under his wing and say, welcome home. Welcome home. This is available to every single one of us. Every one of us in this room, everybody in your town, everybody in your city, everybody in your neighborhood, everybody in your life, everybody in your family. Those who are far off have been called to come near, to partake in the joy of the real Jesus, to taste and see of his supreme goodness and worth and beauty, to see that there's nothing greater than him. Oh, that your heart would be filled by his presence. That you'd stand in wonder in awe of his grace. That you would know that by his blood you have been counted righteous before God. And he wants to take a residence inside of you and pour out his presence on your life. That you would, that you would wake early to spend time with him. That you draw near to him in his word and through prayer. That your children would walk in and see you just weeping over the word of God because he's become so real to you. You would know him. That you'd have a flourishing relationship with the real Jesus. That's my prayer for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we need you. The culture of our day has crept into the center of our lives. No, it's not that culture is all bad. It's not. But it's taken the place of the throne. We've pushed you off. We've taken the seat. We've filled our throne room with the things of this world. Would you convict us this morning? Would you show us the areas of our lives where, 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 where we are being robbed of deep joy? We're being robbed of delight and goodness and happiness and fullness. We're being robbed of freedom. Because we spend more time scrolling through our phones than we do the pages of Scripture. We spend more time propping up false images of ourselves than we do on our knees before you. We spend more time consumed with the things and the stuff that we long for, our desires of our heart, money, possessions then we do the greatest treasure of all. Oh, that we would treasure you above all things. Oh, that we would experience revival in our hearts. Fill us, stir us, 
pour out your presence upon our lives. That is my prayer. And I pray these things in your powerful and wonderful name and the maker and creator and sustainer of all. Would you do that work in our lives this morning, now, today, in our day? Would you do that work in our hearts? Praise in your name. Amen.